Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 321 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. On today's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Kevin Pepper. Kevin is a Canadian photographer who I met on my very first trip with Munch Workshops to Antarctica as an instructor. Kevin was one of the trip leaders and I got to know him through that amazing adventure. Kevin and I talked today a great deal about his culturally immersive experiences in Mongolia, which has become his second home. We dive deep into his journey there, which began in 2013. Well, before we start, I wanted to make one more plea for your support of the podcast on Patreon. Just hit pause and go to patreon.com forward slash f-stop and listen. I found it a little bit shocking that just 1% of our listeners support the show there. I get it though, you know, times are tough and everyone has their hand out and the economy's going down the tubes. But you know what? I operate under the belief that if something provides you with value, you should pay for it in some way. This is known as the value for value model and I believe very strongly in it. As long as you're giving me more than zero dollars, I think it's totally fair. For everyone who already is supporting the show on Patreon, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You are the best. For those of you who are not, just go to patreon.com forward slash fstop and listen to support the show. It would mean the world to me if you did. Okay, let's get to this week's episode with Kevin Pepper. All right, Kevin Pepper, it is awesome to have you on the show finally. Yeah, a couple delays. It's been a long time, my friend. Yes, I think. You were first recommended, I want to say it was Michael Strickland and Lisa LaPointe recommended you. God, that was, so they did your podcast well over a year ago. It took you that long to get to me? Uh, yeah, man. Where? Reach into that camera, smack, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then That's we, fair. That's and fair. Then, and then we finally connected in Antarctica. Yes, we did, which was an amazing experience. Yeah, it was. It was, it's, will forever be one of my favorite destinations to go to it's just incredible yeah and it's really hard to describe you know because i i don't know about you but before i go to a new location i purposely don't do a ton of research just because i want to experience it and just react to it and like that's what i love about nature kind of a thing but antarctica i don't even think if i would have studied it that i would have had any idea what was going to happen it's just so dynamic yeah, nothing can prepare you. In fact, one of the things I enjoyed the most about the last trip was being able to sit back and watch you experience it for the first time and see it through your eyes. I mean, it's just, let's face it, we're all like a kid in a candy store down there. It's just nothing, like we just said, nothing can prepare you. And to watch your excitement when you were down there, thats that made the trip for me. Oh, that's cool. Thanks, man. Yeah, no, no, it was, it was such a blast. And if anyone ever has the opportunity and haven't hasn't done it before, I definitely would recommend trying to get down there. <laughs> hey, did you do the polar plunge? Uh, so Kevin Lasota <laughs> made me photograph it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's okay. I laugh, but uh, you'd never catch me jumping in there. No way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I. I wasn't really going to do it anyway. I think he sensed it. So he's like, yeah, why don't you take pictures? Well, Kevin, for for people that don't know you or 
or don't know about your photography, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? So I'm a full-time professional photographer based out of uh, Canada, Ontario, Canada, just uh, west of Toronto. I've been, uh, I've been a full-time photographer for 13 years and been teaching workshops since 2013. So I'm one of the lucky few that gets to make an income and travel the world and have photography pay my bills. And uh, the only downside is missing my two kids and my granddaughter, who that was, you know, one of the delays of us doing this is I had the granddaughter over. So I'm lucky enough, though, to have uh, a beautiful granddaughter uh, to keep my time occupied when I get home. Awesome. What did you what did you do before you were teaching workshops? Polar opposite. So before uh, I was here, I sat in the ivory tower um, and actually worked for Auto Trader, who many of you will know. And I uh, was responsible for Auto Trader's web business in Canada and seven European countries. Um, so okay. nothing to do with photography, but it was all web based and sat in my office. And that kind of gave me the bug. Uh, of picking up a camera, you can imagine you're traveling to all these exotic places around the world. And our head office was in Paris. Um, so what do you do? You either sit and drink all night in Paris, or I would pick up my camera and I'd wander the streets of Paris taking pictures. And that's probably, you know, was one of the uh, most recent things that prompted me to get into photography, more reasons of how I got into it. We can get into later, but, um, that's really what kind of spurred the interest and really got me into it. Yeah, and it's interesting because you're more of a wildlife and landscape guy now. And so how did you go from photographing Paris and being a, a, in the ivory tower of autotrader.com to, to that? I mean, it just seems like quite a, quite a leap. I, I think we all morph. I think we all start out taking pictures of what we think we want to take pictures of. And then as you get into it, you really find your true love and passion. And I'm all over the place. I mean, we're going to talk about Mongolia, but, you know, I started taking pictures nighttime in Paris. And then I thought, well, landscapes is my thing. And then, you know, switched over to wildlife because landscapes don't move. And I'm not, you know, a serious landscape photographer. I loved animals. And then I morphed into taking animals in the landscapes. And then I ha happened to start traveling and taking pictures of people around the world. And now I just love taking pictures of anything that's in front of me, really. So, yeah, yeah it's yeah, just schizophrenic in my photography. And, and there's people that focus on a genre, but not me. I just love to photograph everything. I've got my favorites, but. Um, right. And I laugh because, you know, I got, I was 13 when my brother was born. My dad was an amateur photographer and I can remember him handing me the camera and say, here, take pictures of your baby brother. And that, that's really what got the ball rolling for me is taking pictures of that now painted my butt, little brother of mine, who's 13 years younger than me. Um, and he, uh, I started taking photography classes in high school and, and just, love taking pictures of absolutely anything and everything. And my 
So my dad was an amateur photographer. My uncle was an amateur photographer. And I guess those two kind of inspired me because, you know, you want to impress your dad and your uncles. And <laughs> that's, you know, started taking my pictures. My parents subscribed to Nat Geo and Time Life. And those were my bedtime stories. My mom would sit with me and go through all the Nat Geo books and show me all these places that we would travel to when I got older, or the Time Life photography books. Um, so those are my earliest memories of being captivated or inspired by things that you can see around the world. Yeah. And now you get to do that on a regular basis, which is super amazing. And I feel like the more places you put yourself into that kind of stretches you as a photographer in terms of, you know, going to all these places, it, it really exposes you to all kinds of different people and, and animals and landscapes that you're maybe not familiar with. And my experience has been a few times I've been able to do that is that it makes me a better photographer when I come back to the places that I'm familiar with. Yeah, I totally agree. You're right. I mean, as you were talking, I thought to myself, my photography really changed when I became a grandpa. Um, let me let me explain that. So I would go and I would travel and I would just take pictures of what I saw without any thought of the people that were back home that aren't lucky enough for me to travel there. And then when I had a granddaughter, I started, th I started thinking, like Antarctica, how long is this place going to look like this? Or, you know, you travel to Africa and you're photographing rhinos that are these rhinos going to be here in another five or 10 years. And it's the old cliche that you hear, tell a story with your pictures. And it wasn't, and I hate to say it again, but it wasn't until I had a granddaughter that I realized what that means for me. And that means taking a look at the environment or the animals that are in this environment or these people that I'm meeting. And it's not taking the snapshot. It's actually taking a picture that people back home can look at and you can tell the story of what's happening in that moment. Um, so that's really changed my photography. And then like what you just said, I've, that's now translated to when I come home and I'm taking a picture of a migratory warbler that's sitting in a tree in my backyard, right? It's not the, the Wikipedia shot anymore. It's more telling a story of this migratory bird, how it's come into my backyard, if that makes any sense at all. But um, it so does. I, it I does. agree with you. Yeah, and I, I will say, you know, to your to your credit, I think that is kind of a cliche, like tell a story. But at the same time, when you talk to a lot of landscape photographers, especially, I think they really struggle with what that even means or what that looks like or like, you know, how do I tell a story if, of a place or whatever through through my images of a landscape? And I'm curious if you have any thoughts or ideas in terms of how someone might be able to get in the right frame of mind or the right headspace or technique wise in order to try to dial in a, a, a story in the landscape or of the landscape. So landscapes for me are all about the moment. I'm never one to walk into a landscape and take a picture and be satisfied. I like to let the scene unfold and for me it's trying so picture this I'm looking at the picture behind you to your left with the reflection in the lake and the sun coming up on the peak 
of the mountain. And for me, you know, that tells me it was, you know, I don't know if it was morning or night, but it was a cool morning in that first spot of sun rays coming through, warming you up. So for me, landscapes is all about you know, taking a picture and showing about how I felt or how it was in that exact moment and using colors or tones um, or softness of, you know, reflections in the water or it was a breezy morning. So get out your ND filters and show the movement of the sky to evoke some kind of motion in it and feeling um, to the moment that you experienced when you took that photo. Nice. Yeah, that makes sense. So basically trying to convey what your experience was like. Yeah, which I think most people, you know, don't think about or don't give themselves enough time to actually convey that message. And it's one of the hardest things to do. And it's, I mean, I look at that, your pictures on your back wall. You've got pictures I don't see. You're more of a photographer than I do. I just got antiques <laughs> behind me. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's it, the hardest thing to do is is create a three-dimensional look and feel and emotion in a two-dimensional uh, medium, like a photograph. And that's why I think most people don't think about it. And if you've actually thought about it, you become a better photographer if you've thought that way. Yeah, 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 well said. Well, <clears throat> I want to shift gears to kind of the main thing that I wanted to talk to you about today. And you had kind of alluded to it earlier, but when we were in Antarctica together, I got to hear a lot of your story about your experiences in Mongolia. I'd love to talk about how your relationship with Mongolia, how was that kindled and how has it become the focus of what you would call your personal work? Can you, can you kind of explain how that all came to be? Yeah, so I mentioned earlier, my mom would sit and we'd flip through the Time Life magazines or the Nat Geo magazines. That kind of, it made me become a history buff um, and made me first introduced to Genghis Khan and the Silk Road uh, and the mystique around that dynasty. So that inspired me back in 2012 to actually go um, and kind of learn more about Genghis Khan. And so it was nothing to do with photography. And when I got there, it, it just, it blew me away. So I go there and I, I want to go explore the forbidden zone of where Genghis Khan is buried and learn more about the Silk Road. And not really, and there was a battle that changed the course of history between Japan and Russia. And long story short, that's what caused Japan to actually bomb Pearl Harbor. So I wanted to learn more about that. But when I got there, I found out that I knew more about Mongolian history than Mongolians did my age or older because they've only ever been ruled by China or Russia. And when Russia was in control, they basically destroyed all history, culture, and religion. And so anybody, you know, 40s and up really doesn't know their history which be, because they never learned it so there i am traveled halfway around the world i'm sitting in mongolia i can't do what i wanted to do I'm talking to the my tour guide about what we're going to do now and he suggested going out and seeing eagle hunters in western mongolia and i'm like what 
eagle what hunters what do they, are they kill eagles and he said no 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 and he explained it to me and i went all right so we hop on a plane the next morning and we get out there and i check into the hotel and i meet the owner of the hotel and his brother is an eagle hunter and and what do you do when you're in a foreign land? You got nothing to do and you're sitting around having dinner. Well, out comes a 40 ounce of vodka and I'm not a big <laughs> drinker. And I just got hammered. And I remember waking up the next morning with the worst hangover. Put me on a horse. They walked me out to this Eagle Festival. Well, not walked. I rode this horse out to the Eagle Festival. And I'm sitting there and covering my face because the sun is just beating on my head and I'm dehydrated. And I hear the call of this golden eagle and I look up and there's hundreds of men on horseback riding towards me in fur carrying these massive golden eagles. And from that moment on of seeing this absolute strange, strangest thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, got me hooked so I photographed the festival I met all these guys and then I remember going back to an eagle hunter's home and we're sitting in his gur tent and we're talking through a translator and I didn't have a lot of experience traveling around the world so I never really met different cultures but I remember thinking my gosh, we are come from totally different parts of the world, total different economic situations, cultural situations. But at the end of the day, our conversation had us come together, realizing that we have the same hopes and dreams and fears and what we want our kids to be when they grow older. So him and I created this awesome bond that, you know, all these years later, he's the guy I go back and stay with. Um, every year when I go, we've become really good friends over the years. And I've seen his kids grow up and his kid who was a baby when I was first there uh, is now an eagle hunter on his own. So it just has become this incredibly special relationship that has transcended photography and is now about me going to see friends versus going to take a picture. Yeah, I was going to say, I heard you describe it as like your second family. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's the weirdest feeling. Imagine traveling halfway around the world and walking down the street of this town of a couple hundred people and hear your name being called because somebody remembered you because you come there every year and... You know, for me, like I said, it's not going about taking, it's not just about going over and taking their pictures. It's about connecting with friends. And I think that enthusiasm and those relationships serve everybody that comes with me a lot better versus, you know, somebody that's just doing another photo tour over there because, you know, we'll go visit people and go into their homes and have dinner with them. And it's catching up. And I think it gives people a sense of comfort knowing that, you know, these are friends of Kevin's. They're not just some subject that right. we're going to photograph when we're over there. Right. What would, what would you say your, your approach has been in terms of developing a relationship with the Mongolian people? And I'm curious how that particular approach has impacted the quality of your photography. So it's been you know, 11, 12 years 
18 workshops plus scouting trips since I started going there. And I've been extremely lucky to have a guide, Zaya, who has led me on all these trips. And she's such an incredible, special person. We're so close, she sends my family Christmas gifts. Um, and she's taught me the language. Uh, I've learned the customs. I understand the way of life. You know, I started out as a stranger. And like I said, now um, I can walk down any street and I see people that I know. Um, so it's those relationships, like you asked, so Zaya was a big reason how I've developed all those relationships. And so are the people that own the tour company that I use. But I think the one thing that has made a difference are my approach. So imagine if I brought 12 Mongolian photographers into your home to meet you and they immediately started taking pictures of you and your family. You'd be like, what, 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 what's going on here? Yeah. So what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Why, why are you taking a picture of me on my couch or eating my dinner? So for me, it's about, you know, meeting the people, learning them and getting to know them and interacting on a personal level and showing an interest in their customs and their way of life. And not only that, but sharing information about my family and my customs and sharing and connecting on a personal level versus just, you know, between the lens. And that's, that's been my approach with those people. Yeah, it's definitely paid off both photographically, photographically and personally. What what has that done to your images in terms of giving them some kind of special qualities or like it's a better story? Like what what differentiates the images that you're making in Mongolia? I think so. What it's allowed me to do is give them the confidence or the comfort level with me to take me into their world where they may be apprehensive for people that they just met. So I'm mm -hmm. afforded the opportunity to, you know, meet their families, meet their children, photograph them, um, take me to places that they may not want to take other people. So understanding the history of the eagle, how they take the female eagle before it fledges out of the nest, um, I've been lucky enough to go with them to see that happen, getting the eagle out of the nest. I've been afforded the opportunity to be at a ceremony where they release their eagle after having them for nine to 12 years. That's special to them and important. And I think the relationships that I've developed has got me to that point where I'm allowed to do that and it's made my images and these aren't images I show or share. I don't take images for that reason. These images are for me and mostly for me alone because they transport me back to that moment in time and make me smile and give me some awesome memories. I love that. Well, I would love to learn a lot more about the Eagle Hunters of Mongolia. It seems like from many Western perspectives, this may seem somewhat of a photography trope. You know, we've all seen the Eagle Hunter pictures and things like that. However, you've, you've spent so much time there learning about their culture and this custom. 
And I know that you have a lot to share about this cultural phenomenon, so I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more of the nitty-gritty about it. So I think the first written mention of it was in 900 AD, uh, 900 AD by the Chitons. So this is a practice of eagle falconry on horseback that's been going on for over 1,100 years. So, you know, yeah, it, you know, it looks, you know, you see the pictures and everybody takes the same pictures, you know, eagle holding up the eagle or riding on horseback. But if you go past that and understand why it's done, it's, it's was to, it was their only way of capturing fox or some kind of animal to produce fur to keep them warm or meat you know this was done before the development of you know rifles over there so this this was their way to feed and clothe their family and they're such a proud people that they've kept this tradition alive and i'll touch on this later that now i'm worried because of things that are changing that it may not happen you know it may not be in existence at the end of my lifetime um but it's just so here this let me explain this so how does a wild golden eagle who would rip your face off in a heartbeat of given the opportunity work together with a human for one common good that that blew my mind how that actually could happen and then to think oh okay maybe they're trained or it's like a falconry no then so nine to twelve years depending on the eagle and the eagle hunter this eagle gets released back in the wild and thrives because it's their belief that they want these female eagles because they only ever get female eagles they want them to have more offspring to keep the bloodline of the golden eagles alive so it's just the only way I can express just what captivates me is so go back to my question. How does this wild eagle and this man actually work together for the common good, but they just work in tandem. And I think for me, that's what's so special. The man commands, the eagle follows instinctively goes and kills whatever it sees and then sits on the prey and waits for the eagle hunter to come and take it off and give it its reward. And it's not like, you know, they, they put these golden eagles in a some kind of cage. These eagles live with their family. I mean, I've spent countless sleepless nights sleeping on, trying to sleep on my cot with this golden eagle right outside the tent. <laughs> so these things, like, actually live with them. And it's it's just so awesome to see when you get behind those cliche photos that you see from the festivals i mean yeah i'm guilty of it when i first started going there i would go to that big festival that i went the first time but i've gotten past that and the need to just go photograph something you see in you know a magazine or online and get behind that and go photograph the people as they actually are and their families and how they actually live and nothing about these trips makes me feel special when they say to me, um, why don't you come hunting with us? 
you know, outside of the groups where, you know, they put me on horseback and take me up into the mountains and I get to experience them doing this. And I feel like I'm kind of invited into the club and it's kind of cool. So yeah, I, I, I hope that answered your question, but it's just, yeah, these are just proud Kazakh men and women. It's not just, you know, men that do this. It's women and girls. I, I, go back to the relationships if anybody is listening has seen the eagle hunters with iasho fan that came out in 2015 the movie um you know that was when that movie was being made it was the first year i met iasho fan and i can remember being on a trip going to see her and her family and being with her there's a photo circulating somewhere of her and I kneeling down with her golden eagle, both of us with tears in our eyes because she's explaining to me how she has to release her eagle back into the wild because she was headed off to Kazakhstan to go to university. Um, oh, wow. So, yeah, so that's that's the special bond. I mean, it goes to prove that it's just more than an eagle. It's actually a member of the family. That's, that's amazing. As you were talking, I got to thinking about you know you said you've taught like 18 workshops or something like that out there yeah and i'm curious kind of what's your approach for getting your workshop clients to become more immersed in the culture and to move beyond those kind of you know typical touristy shots without with a lack of better term but how do you get them to start to appreciate more of the kind of personally connective images so it starts long before the trip. So I've got a trip coming up in this October. Um, I've already had the first conversation to walk everybody through the trip and to let them understand that this is more than the cliche photos. They're going to get the cliche photos, but then I let them understand that it's how special a place is. And I think that's why a lot of people come with me because it's more than just a workshop. It's a cultural immersion experience. And I give everybody homework and say, you know, go out and search online and come back and show me the kind of pictures you want to take so I can help you get those images while you're there. And I'll do the same. And I start sharing the intimate photos of me with eagle hunters or mothers with children or explain to them, you know, about this kind of people. And it's not just eagle hunters. There's camel herders. There's reindeer herders. And there's now such a rich history. And I think one something else that helps them get past is it. So I will rent out an entire cultural museum for the night. And I will take the group there and they will get a private tour and ask all the questions they want and see everything people don't see on normal tours. And then I'll bring in musicians and contortionists and who will perform for my group while they're eating dinner in this museum that I've rented out. And I think that helps them transcend from just, I'm there to take pictures. I'm actually here to learn something about the country I'm in. And I think, you know, through having run all these workshops, helped me to get there. And I wish I could, you know, start employing that kind of mindset and some of the other cultural trips that I do. Right. I mean, there's only so many days in the year. 
I mean, you can't become an expert of every culture, Kevin. No, I know. One can hope, one can hope. Yeah. I'm getting old, man. I don't have much time left to do this. <laughs> I feel that. Well, so you first went to Mongolia in 2012 as a photographer, and I'm curious, how have you seen Mongolia change since you started visiting? Oh, my God. For for the good and bad, and uh, I won't sugarcoat this at all. Let's just dig right into it. So, you know, when I first started going there, um, it was you know, it wasn't as advanced as it is now. I see high rises, you know, going up every year that I'm there. I can remember the first few falls. I would get there; it was very cold, and it's coal-fired heat. And I look out my window, and there'd be like half an inch of soot on the window sills, and I can remember driving to the airport and there's this green smog funneling down um, the valley and that's starting to go away. There's a clean coal program now. So I see, you know, that changing for the better. Um, although there's way more people in Ulaanbaatar than there should be driving around there is absolutely crazy. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it's probably the I, it's probably the worst city I've ever been in for driving, um, <laughs> and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. So now it's actually, you know, the restaurant is literally two miles away. It's better to walk because it would take you ten times longer to drive there. Um, right, and you might die. <laughs> yeah, and you might die. Yeah, but I've also so another thing. So I mentioned they've only ever been run by Russia or China, but now they have a democratic way of life and democratic politics, a more Western way of ruling. And it's been good for the country, um, but it's been bad. And so you think of all these rural children who are now being exposed to the Western way of life. So we can go to the big city and go to universities um, and get a better education and make more monies. Um, and I uncovered in my zest for learning more about Mongolia, talking to politicians or NGOs and university professors. The thing that's not talked about is a lot of these kids leave their families and go to the big city and don't graduate. So they, you know, lack, I don't know, the intelligence or lack the will to follow through and going to university or college and they drop out and they're embarrassed and they don't want to go home. Um, they turn to a life of crime and drugs. Um, mm. So I, I've, you know, since I've been going there, I've seen that increase and I, I kind of didn't want to believe it. And then so one year I went on a, a trip kind of on my own and had my guide take me to the NGOs and the university professors and politicians and based on something I'm sure we'll talk about of an award that I got from the government I was kind of given access to actually uncover these things so you know there's good and bad and you know, lastly one thing that concerns me the most that's changed over there is we you know, maybe it's something people don't think about. So climate change, whether you believe it or not, it's having an impact over there. So where these 
eagle hunters are, for instance, is in basically one valley. The, the climate is changing in this valley. The eagles are moving away. The prey is moving away. So where they've done this for over a thousand years is now in jeopardy of not continuing in our lifetime because the eagles may not be there or the fox or the palace of cat or whatever the eagles hunt may not exist in valley so these people who have are farmers who have homes in these valleys are faced with at some point do they give up eagle falconry or do they have to move to a different area to still continue with this tradition that's been going on for over a thousand years so you know gotcha there's been some good and there's some bad and i guess maybe if i hadn't been there going there for so long i'd be a, a, a oblivious to this and but it's because of their friends i'm worried about it and it's something that i always think about yeah that's the thing that time gives you is perspective especially in photography i've noticed some of the some similar things in the places i've been going to ever since i was a kid you know there's subtle changes that are starting to occur that only people that are in tune with nature or in tune with place start to recognize do where were you? I just saw pictures you posted snow and you made a comment that it was so unusual where you were that there was snow. And I'm thinking it's springtime. What the heck is there? It was late spring and we're, it wasn't Death Valley. Where were you? I just remember you commenting that it's it's the freak snow. Oh, and I was in Arizona. <laughs> Arizona, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then. Arizona just got. Have you gotten the Northern Lights lately? There's been some incredible nah, nights. Too busy doing this. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I mean, it's. I'm in Canada, and it's not totally out of the realm. But I just saw pictures online of people photographing the aurora in Arizona. Arizona, man. Yeah, uh, it doesn't make sense. No. Apparently, the storm that just hit the solar storm. It's like a cape. It's like the. Strongest magnetic storm that's ever been measured in history. Yeah, well, we're we're coming out of an 11-year low. And, you know, I would say in the next two, three years, as things spike, we're going to get some incredibly high storms. But if you love night sky and aurora, the next three years is definitely going to be when you want to get out there and looking for it. And you don't have yeah. to go in the winter. Gonna... You, can come up, you can come up to Canada. We'll go photograph it in the fall somewhere. I was going to go out last night, but I was in a meeting until like 1030 at night. And I was like too tired. So anyway, well, so back to Mongolia. I know you had alluded to this a little bit already, but I would love for you to talk about the award that you received in 2018 from the Mongolian government. What was that all about? <laughs> so, you know, one of the, you know, first you know, foreigners that were over there and running trips. I was taking pictures to promote my trips and my company. And I started sharing pictures with my tour company who then in turn shared pictures or articles that I've written with the government and who in turn used that to help promote tourism in Mongolia. And like I said, it's not just about eagle hunters. It's incredible landscapes over there. Um, there's the reindeer herders, there's the camel herders, the Gobi Desert is just spectacular. Some of the largest sand dunes in the world. So 
they were so appreciative of me just willing to share my images and written materials that I had created that they could use to promote tourism. Um, the Minister of Tourism and Culture um, used or uh, showed up one night with a citation and the last night of one of my trips um, and awarded me this for this incredible honor of helping them, you know, advance tourism in Mongolia. And it's just, you know, my wife calls it my get out of jail free card in Mongolia. <laughs> um, but it's a huge honor. And it's like nothing that I expected I was going to get or a reason I did it. It's just, it goes to them and how appreciative and incredibly nice these people are over there that they would just go and do this for me. Um, and reward me for it. So yeah, it was, it's an honor and it sits in my office and I look at it all the time and it just deepened my love for continuing to keep going back to that country. So would you say you're the Canadian ambassador to Mongolia? That's kind of the joke with the tour company and I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm the resident, yeah, the Canuck ambassador. Yeah. And some people in the company where I work would say I'm the least cultured person and they can't understand why I do some of the most cultural trips in the company. Yeah. That's funny. Well, so given your experience in Mongolia and how you've made such a connection to that place and how it's transformed you and your photography of that place and of those people, I'm curious for those people that are listening to this podcast, what advice would you have for them looking to make more personal work, more, uh, more, more interesting images uh, of and in the places that they visit? Um, so one is research, which we talked about, is understanding where you're going and what you're going to be photographing. Um, two is if you're photographing, so if you're going to photograph animals, understand the idiosyncrasies of the animals you're going to photograph and what makes a compelling image. There's way better photographers than all of us than all of us that have been to these locations before that you can read about and understand what they're looking to photograph when they photograph an animal. You know, think of a Canada lynx in Canada. They have a paw bigger than my hand, um, incredibly strong muscles and can jump, you know, 60 feet. So it's understanding the idiosyncrasies, idiosyncrasies of those animals in order to capture it, to tell, to go back before, tell that story of what you're seeing or capturing them in the environment in which they live. Not the, like I said, the Wikipedia shot where they're sitting in the snowbank. Um, when it comes to culture and people, you know, I say this all the time. We talked about it. Put yourself in their shoes. You're walking into their home. You don't know them. They don't know you from Adam. And they could be extremely uncomfortable because they've got 12 cameras in their face taking a picture of them. Get to know them on a personal level. And don't just ask them. Get, you know, Tell them what you're all about, why you're into photography, why you traveled to where you've traveled to. And you know, make that personal connection because then, you know, it's as simple as if you make that personal connection, um, 
when you first meet somebody, there's not a lot of eye to eye contact, but when you personally get to know people, then they start looking at you and that taking that picture of that eyes and getting that connection, you know, the eyes are the gateway to the soul. And it tells a lot about people. If you can capture that, um, capture their eyes versus when they're looking away. Not that there's not emotion when somebody's looking down, but you want to get that eye contact. Um, and if it's landscapes, it's all about a sense of place, like we talked about. It's telling that story of how you felt in that moment. And I, people get so tied up in conventional ways of what some stranger tells you how to take a picture. Think back 10 years ago. Everybody was trying to do HDR, and it was a fad. And then, you know, focus stacking or oversaturation in photos and for me i i get i almost get a little upset when people try and emulate all i'm just going to use the broad term fat start taking pictures for yourself and what makes you happy don't worry about what you think somebody else is going to be happy with seeing take a picture that makes you smile and gives you a feeling or a memory, because when you look at that picture six months from now, it'll transport you back to that. If you know you want to start selling your images, or you maybe you want to be a professional, if you create your own style, people that like the style of your photos will gravitate to you. And you'll quickly be uncovered, not as a fraud, but you'll quickly get uncovered if you start taking pictures that you think people want to see. Because that passion or that the quality of your images won't come through, but it'll come through if you start taking pictures for yourself. And I think, you know, Mongolia, there's a good example. I, I stopped worrying about all the conventional photos of what you would see and start taking pictures of what, you know, stirred some kind of emotion in me or of people that I know and I love. Um, and I stopped caring about what other people thought of. And now that I go back to it that's probably when people started traveling with me more because maybe my emotion and my passion started showing through in my images mm. i think what you said earlier about wildlife and you know studying the wildlife and understanding its behavior and you know being able to anticipate the image that you're expecting might happen i think that can apply to landscapes as well in terms of getting to know the place and being curious about it and learning about it and learning about the ecology of the place and learning about the plant life and the animals that visit and, you know, the cycles of the moon and the sun and the stars and understanding where the light hits and what that quality of light does to the landscape and things like that. I think those same ideas can be applied to landscape photography. And I think, you know, when I look at people who have spent a ton of time in a very specific area, typically for me, those are the photographers that I've most greatly appreciate because they go super deep and you can really tell that they have a passion for that place and and they have a connection to it and and that personal side of their images starts to come through i agree totally and yeah you kind of hit the nail on the head it's spending time and location to understand the little idiosyncrasies of where does the moon rise at certain times of year where does the sun come down um is it better to be there and sunrise or sunset um what's the flora and fauna and what are the best seasons to be there to capture 
whatever flora and fauna is there. And, you know, I always say it's kind of the downside of what I do of running workshops. So I have the benefit, let's say, of been going to Newfoundland every year for the last 10 years and have the advantage of being in the right place at the right time because I've spent thousands of hours photographing puffins and somebody comes on a trip where they only have maybe eight hours and there's an expectation that they're going to get that exact photo that I got that I spent thousands of hours investing in. So, um, yeah, yeah. If, if, if that yeah. makes any sense. That's, it does. <laughs> <laughs> so you've, you've spoken about the role that emotions in your photographic process play and I'm curious if you can describe how other photographers can tap into that in their own photography. Ah, yeah. So, so uh, I could take this in so many ways. So for me, you know, tapping into how you feel at a particular moment in time. So it, it doesn't matter what you're photographing. It's how do you feel? So I often tell people, stop taking pictures for a minute. And just enjoy the moment because the memory will last longer than the picture because the picture will go in your hard drive and you won't see it again for six months. So I always tell people to just sit back and soak in the environment that they're seeing, whether that's an animal, a person, or a landscape. And just enjoy it and allow, and, and allow yourself to feel. And once you have allowed yourself to feel in the moment of where you are, now, take that feeling and translate it into the photo. Capture what you personally feel and put that into that two-dimensional medium now. Um, and I find that exercise helps a lot of people out. So when you come on a trip, I hate you know, going from spot to spot to spot to spot just to fill a day so you get a ton of photos in a day. I would rather take you to minimal amounts of spots based on my experience of going to that location for years and put you in the best place at the right time to give you the best feeling in the moment in order for you to translate that into the best photo you can take in terms of like tapping into that feeling and then translating it into a two-dimensional image what's the how like how, how do you bridge that gap let me flip that around and ask you the same question well, I've said on this podcast before, like, I'm not the best at tapping into my emotions when I'm in the field as a photographer, but over the last maybe two or three years, I've started to notice in some of my images that how I felt in the moment of capture is starting to translate into the image. I'm not always consciously aware of it when I'm in the field and when I'm, you know, engaged in field craft. I, I'm finding that it's something that I'm recognizing after the fact uh, when I'm processing the image that, oh, like, look at how these shapes are, these patterns are lining up, these shapes are lining up. Like, oh, there's a lot of triangles here. Like, I must have felt some kind of connection to this particular image for this reason because that symbolizes strength and power. So, so it's experience. So the more pictures you take, the more you just inherently know what makes a good picture and what doesn't. 
There's a lot of intuition. Yeah. yeah. And some people have it and some people don't. And sometimes it's a learned skill and sometimes it's just you you got it. So it's just my, the light bulb went off in my head when you were saying that. I noticed it in my photography too. So it's the nuances, like you said, it's the shapes or the lines or inherently know where to put that leading line and understand how your viewer is going to view your image, how to use, we talked about it before, quality of light, not just taking a snapshot, but actually knowing how that eye is going to get drawn through that scene and where you really had to work on it five years ago. Now you just inherently know when the best time is to take that picture. And I think, and you said it too. So it kind of comes out in post-processing. I think now you take pictures more with post-processing in mind than you used to. Now you're taking a picture and think, I, you know, I see it coming. I'm going to need to bring that out or I need to lighten this, you know, this line to, to draw that eye up into those mountains in the background. So you start seeing and understanding based on the more experience you have of taking pictures. Yeah, 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 totally. And, you know, what's awesome about photography is there's so much to still for me, I don't know about you, but like there's still so much more room for improvement. Like it's every time I go out, I feel like I'm learning a new lesson or making, you know, engaging in new mistakes that are teaching me how to make my photography just a little bit better every time. And sometimes I backslide a little too, and that's okay. That's part of the process. Yeah, I often talk about something. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Where you right, you think you you think you're the master at a skill, and then all of a sudden you realize you know so much. You, there's so much more to learn, and one of two things happen, and you either go, oh, "It's just too complicated. I don't care," or you get the zest of learning more and become more master of your craft. And you know, you just you know, you said it. You there's always more to learn. You're always willing to learn more. And you're continually being open to new things. And that's just going to make you a better artist as the years go on. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I know, you know, we sort of already touched on this a little bit, but I know a lot of people talk about uh, personal expression as it relates to photography. And, and I found, for me, it's kind of hard to pin down when I discuss it with my friends like what do you mean when you're what are you personally expressing so what does it mean to you to personally express yourself through your photography so i think it's what i'm attracted to when i take a picture it's not let's go back to an eagle hunter riding his horse holding his arm up with the eagle's arms all out running through water where the water is splashing you know something you'd see in a magazine or back a book cover so my personal so that picture does nothing for me although i'll take it and i've got to teach people how to take it so for me personal expression means you know putting my spin or taking a picture of what's important to me or telling me a story and i'll go back to what i said before it's taking a picture that i'm personally attracted to so when i see it six months from now it transports me back to when I was taking it and, and I'll say it again I don't take pictures for other people or what I think other people want to see I, the pictures I take are for me um, that make me 
personally gratified and so yeah that's i just that's what personal expression means to me it's something that makes me happy um yeah and i mean i feel like personal expression and tapping into that and being open to that and shooting for you and being mindful of what you're being attracted to that's what differentiates you as a person that's what makes your photography your photography if you're doing it because it, you saw someone else do it you're doing it because you want to be like them you're yes. not trying to do it because it's for you and i think that that's going to show up in your work if you focus on trying to just be personal with it i think it's going to elevate you it might be a slower process you know you're not going to probably win any awards right out the gate but you know five ten years down the road you're going to be one of the best photographers on earth <laughs> and more and more personally gratified because you've developed you took the time to develop your own style um yeah. i mean i get people coming on trips and say hey i saw this picture of this camel herder on the sand dunes and the milky way was behind it and there was the fur on the camel was lit up the, there was rim lighting on it and i'm like really like how unrealistic first of all is the milky way ever going to create rim lighting on a camel no it's never going to happen so you know if that's the style of photography you want to do great but i'm more into realism and capturing that with as least editing as possible um, because i want people to see what it's really like to be where i was and what i saw love it so what are your future plans in Mongolia? What do you, what do you have left to do there? Uh, so uh, I've been working on a picture book. So uh, the last thing for me to do to complete the book is to go back. Um, usually I'm there in fall with groups. It's the best time to be there um, photographically, but I want to go in the winter and go hunting with the eagle hunters in the winter when they're actually doing it, when there's no groups around. Uh, so that's that's the last thing I want to do there with the eagle hunters. And some the book I want to do isn't just about eagle hunters. Um, I photograph reindeer herders. Um, so I want to go up and spend some time with the reindeer herders in the winter time as well um, and photograph them up there and get to know more about that culture. Uh, and then there's some wildlife I want to explore. They've got a significant population of snow leopards and palaces cats, um, which I want to go photograph, uh, again. And then I don't think I'll ever be done with Mongolia. It'll be one of those trips I keep on doing as long as this body will allow me to continue to do the long flights over there. But it's, um, those are the last things I want to do before I do this this tabletop book and it's not to make money it's just yeah i'll sell it but i want to give back i mean there's a foundation we talked about climate change and how it's affecting they're studying it um so i'd love to give back and help that out because they're more than photography subjects they're friends and i want to do whatever i can to help them keep this way of life alive i love that well while you're there don't forget to um to get the camel with the milky way and the rim light yeah, I'll send you that picture when I'm there this October. Hey, look what I got, Matt. <laughs> I don't think you'll be able to pull it off in October, but maybe in maybe in August. No, I'll go in October. <laughs> I'll tilt the Milky Way up on its axis, <laughs> vertical axis. 
Use another picture from somewhere else. <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah. That's the only way to do it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So what workshops do you have coming up that you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, so, I mean, on the cultural side, I'm so happy to be going back to Africa next year uh, to go see the Rendili and Samburu tribes in, you know, kind of mid-Kenya up um, to start doing more with those tribes in Kenya. Going back to Antarctica, we talked about it. I'm so excited that we've got trip planned this this winter to go back to Antarctica. Um, and then, of course, Mongolia. I'm there every fall. I'd love to take anybody who's interested in culture and landscapes or wildlife and show one of my favorite places in the world. And maybe one year I'll get you there, too. Oh, that'd be cool. And where, where can people... Learn more about the workshops that you lead. Yeah, all the workshops I have are in kevinpepperphotography.com. Uh, under the workshop page, I've got them listed out by landscape, wildlife, culture, destinations. Take your pick and look, see what I'm doing. But yeah, everything's listed on my personal website. And does that link directly over to Munch then? Yeah, so all the workshops I do, you'll be able to scan them and get an understanding of what workshops i'm doing and click on the link and it'll take you to the full workshop details on the Munch workshop website awesome all right kevin well one one last question who would you recommend for the podcast who are a couple of photographers that uh, we need to learn more about uh kevin lasota have you talked to kevin yet no but um i really want to dig deeper into his rocket photography which oh my God. i was blown away. i had no idea <laughs> yeah it's just incredible we just had the talk because he was supposed to be at the most recent launch but he couldn't go um and but yeah what a passion he's such an incredibly talented technical photographer um and you know in our company if you have a question about lightroom or a camera you pick up the phone and call kevin um, right <laughs> so yeah, so Kevin Lasota, and there's, well, my brother from another mother that knows more about birds of prey um, than any two people I know, Jeff Wendorf, who has probably photographed more birds in his lifetime than you and I will ever do. Um, yeah, when Wendorf the Gray is a great, is a great, uh, yeah, a great recommendation. So, yeah, that's the only other one I could think of. Oh, Richard Lanson, have you ever taken a look at Richard's work out of Australia? Uh-uh. He's an incredibly talented photographer um, that I've admired for a long time. L apostrophe A-N-S-O-N. Richard. Got it. All right, Kevin Pepper. This has been super fun. I am now inspired to go check out some eagle hunters and really experience that before it's too late. So thank you so much for for that amazing conversation. No, I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. I'm glad we got to do this. Yeah, absolutely, man. Well, thank you to Kevin for the awesome conversation. You really make me want to visit Mongolia, not only for the landscapes, but for the amazing people that live there. What an incredible journey you've been on. Here's to many more. 
Before we part ways, I want to remind you that the Natural Landscape Photography Awards Year 3 is now open. We have shortened the submission time frame this year and you have until the end of July to get your entries in. This gives us more time for judging and raw verification. If you're not familiar with NLPA, I created the competition with Tim Parkin, Alex Nail, and Rajas Jodhiswaran, who I all met through this very podcast. We wanted to create a platform for photographers to showcase their realistically edited landscape and nature photography by not only giving away over $13,000 in cash, but also by featuring our favorite work in our perennial fine art photography books, which you can see here. The best thing is that if you get into the book, you get a copy of the book for free, which is something that no other competition offers. Just head over to naturallandscapeawards.com to begin submitting your images and projects. I can't wait to see your work. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.